0: Hi, everybody. Good afternoon. Uh, This is Greg Lois. I am with my esteemed partner, uh, Christian Cison, today. And we are going to be talking about the drug formulary in New York, which is everybody's favorite topic. It's pretty intense. Yeah. All right. We are about a month away, a little less than a month away now from the implementation of the drug formulary. We start to get a ton of questions on this formulary, and we thought this would be a perfect opportunity to give an overview of it.
1: We're going to focus on some of the loopholes
0: that we found in it, some of the problems. And then we are going to try to answer as many of your questions as we possibly can. So, we're going to talk about the formulary in general, uh, sort of the things we've observed, and what the board is saying about how the formulary is going to work. We're going to talk about how to read the formulary. And in fact, there's a handout uh, today that we're going to go over and kind of show everybody how we think the formulary is going to work. Uh, we're going to talk about what the review process is. So, when you're getting those prior authorization requests, When we're disputing the need uh, for specific drugs under the formulary. uh, We're going to talk about how that is done, who has to be accredited, how you are, all those things. Uh, We're going to talk briefly about the electronic portal uh, and then uh, we are going to give you as much practical advice as we can and answer as many questions as we can. What else are we good for? What else are we here for really? So uh, our goal is to try to get through an overview of the formulary in about 10 to 15 minutes Uh, We have a lot of slides uh, to sort of plow through. And then uh, to answer as many of your live questions as we can, we're going to ask everyone to type your questions into the box. I have a computer in front of me. I can see the questions popping up and we'll try to answer as many as we can. We will not say your last name, we'll just say your first name, so you know we're talking to you and answering your question. We're gonna try to pick out questions that are gonna be useful for the whole group.
1: Right, and Mm -hmm. there's There's already questions questions coming in, so I know that we won't get to everybody's because this is such a new topic, but we'll be sure to get to everyone's by email after the webinar if we don't get to them today. Yeah, and a hot topic.
0: I mean, my email has been full of questions about this, so is yours, right? Yeah. So I feel like this is the right time to be talking about this, all right. Uh, let's do a quick overview. The law changed in April of 2017. Those changes are starting phase in. Uh, those changes uh, included the adoption or the requirement that the board adopt a formulary. And it, the, uh, the formulary is now being divided into a number of different types of medications listed as phase A, phase B, perioperative drugs. Right. Uh, they also have another designation of second-line drugs that we're going to talk about what the heck that means. Uh, and then we're going to talk about uh, how the uh, drug formulary interacts with the medical treatment guidelines. Uh, so we're gonna talk about sort of how all of these things fit together today. Yeah, if you're wondering
1: why uh, you know, the, the, the change came in April 2017, it's because there were uh, three comment periods where the actual formulary changed uh, after each one. So uh, we finally have something with an anchoring event coming up, like you mentioned and uh, we're we're ready to take on that challenge and see how that affects uh, your cases.
0: Yeah, the last formulary was issued, I think November 5th, 2019, right? So that was uh, the adoption and some changes uh, that have come in. Uh, The formulary looks pretty simple on the surface. It's only 12 pages, really 11 pages if you don't count the cover. It looks pretty simple, but as we started to uh, answer specific questions about it, realized actually this is pretty complicated stuff and pretty complex. Um, All right. So let's talk about the different levels of drugs. And I'm hoping that everyone has had the opportunity to pull out the handout that we've included in the webinar materials today and take a look through. If this is your first time looking through uh, the actual formulary itself. You realize it looks quite simple. Uh, if you're looking at the formulary, and uh, we've got a copy for you. Oh, you go, but, at that. Uh, it should be the one that says November 5, uh, 2019, on the cover, that's the most recent one. As you're looking through the formulary, uh, they talk about what is a phase A drug, phase B drug, all those things. And it's important to note uh, that these phases are gonna refer to when we're going to be allowing uh, these drugs to be utilized in the, in the uh, case so a phase a drug is one that is listed in the formulary it is generally going to be used within the first 30 days following the injury or the establishment of the case now it's important to note that the timelines in the formulary start with the either the establishment by the board of a claim
1: or the date of injury whichever is sooner. which is funny because when is the establishment going to become before the it injury not right? possible. so uh that it's kind of, it's kind of like, like a, a, a little little play here that's going to be the first 30 days from the injury right?
0: okay and those uh, phase a drugs are allowed up to a 30-day supply of course can they come back and request more uh, phase a drugs yeah but they're going to require our prior approval so we'll talk about how that works in a second a phase b drug uh, these are drugs that are supposed to be used after the first 30 days they're on a very specific list and they follow, in general, the medical treatment guidelines. Now, interestingly, a Phase B drug is going to be allowed for up to 90 days supply at once. And, by the way, they can just keep coming back and adding on more 90-day periods. Sure. It's allowed sure. under the guidelines. Okay. Uh, so... Uh, what if the phase B drug, and this would be uh, the type of maintenance or palliative care drug that we would expect someone to be on for a long period of time, right. I'm thinking of things like muscle relaxers. This um, is exactly the vessels. drug that you just
1: mentioned, right? The ones where the 90-day supply is out and it's deemed unsuccessful, right? So this is very different from uh, your typical visit to the doctor when you uh, really exhaust all of your medication. You come back and the doctor kind of shakes his his or her head and says, I don't know if you need this. We know that doesn't happen in workers' compensation that often. right? So there is now a system here uh, that would uh, allow for second-line drugs to to be applied. It's going to be a little bit hectic once it gets started, but I think uh, ultimately it might be helpful. Right, and they
0: specifically say that the second-line drug Uh, should be prescribed after the first one has proven to be unsuccessful or there's side effects uh, or perhaps uh, comorbidities that are preventing the efficacy of that first-line drug. All right, so the second-line drugs, we just talked about it, this follows a phase B drug. Uh, This is where the first-line drug is ineffective. Uh, There's also a class of drugs labeled perioperative drugs. And this kind of makes sense too. This is uh, medications that we're going to be taking either four days before or four days after surgery. So I'm imagining all the types of surgical medications, anesthetics, right. all sorts of things. A lot of your
1: painkillers, uh, post-operative treatment for, uh, you know, or any, any kind of wound, uh, you know, uh, relaxers. Uh, the interesting thing about perioperative, it, by definition, it's supposed to mean when the person goes in for surgery and when they come out. So leave it to the board to, you know, create a four-day window. Before and after to, to actually give you more uh, of an opportunity to get prescriptions. but all right and so no far
0: mention. I would say you know this stuff all sorts of made sense and okay, we're all on the same page and then the board, of course, because it is the board, uh, goes and uh, creates the special considerations. So uh, these are special considerations where we're going to think maybe the rules do or do not apply based on the uh, actual uh, treatment course. Uh, so some special considerations that apply not, for example, Uh, are good for us, not to exceed a seven day supply. This would apply to things like opiates and narcotics. uh, And there are several drugs that are labeled number one on the uh, uh, formulary specifically saying not to exceed a certain amount.
1: Uh, right. If, uh, if you guys have, have the, the worksheet, uh, the Special Considerations has its own column with a number attached to it. Uh, most people think of Special Considerations in our line of work as uh, the Schedule Loss of Use Guidelines and adding percentages onto uh, you know a range of motion deficit. Mm-hmm. Here, it might actually help because it further limits when a formulary drug can be used. Mm-hmm.
0: Okay. Uh, next is for the prescribed course of therapy things like antibiotics, things like we've had an infection and in an operated body part. Uh, and so we would see maybe that's a special consideration where special drug would have to be done. Uh, some drugs are identified as short acting only. Uh, and this short acting only really would be for things like breakthrough pain medication. Uh, we don't want to keep people on narcotics opiates that have a long lasting effect. So, For that reason, they have this special consideration. And then, of course, the board has a special loophole, uh, which says, quote, uh, anything else as clinically indicated. Uh, And specifically, they created this loophole for situations where there is no medical treatment guideline, uh, there is no prescription basis, and really the, tr- the doctor, the prescriber, is looking for a loophole to sort of throw in, and that's the special Right, procedure. right. I would say it's almost like the
1: exception to the exception, where the formulary is designed to make sure that medications are reasonable, uh, and this here is going to be uh, certainly one of contention between our side and, and the treating doctor. Yep, all
0: right, so. Uh, just a quick reminder, this is completely and totally live, so please ask us questions as they come up to you. Uh, okay, when is prior authorization required? Well, it's pretty simple. If the prescribing provider is trying to get something prescribed, that is not listed in the formulary. All right, so uh, wonderful risk professional. I know all our risk professionals have four, or five, six different hats on their heads at all times. You're a litigation manager. You're a social worker. You're an accountant. You're the fiduciary of an insurance carrier and insurer. You've got all these roles on your hat in your head. And now there's another one, which is a pharmaceutical expert. So uh, you are supposed to be able to figure out by looking at this formulary uh, if the drug is applied. Now, unfortunately, That's where
1: your 12-page document kind of goes to shreds uh, yeah, yeah. here because the, the fine print is so small. to right. lists yeah. everything here. All right.
0: So we get it. This is going to be really tough to figure out. Is the drug
1: listed in the formula? So that's number one. It's actually two. I mean, to, to add to that level of specificity, drugs not listed in the formulary also include drugs that are in the formulary but are not applied in the ways that the formulary wants you to be. So think of your special considerations or your first line, second line, phase A, phase B. If the drug is being used outside of those specific little uh, poles, right. then, then it's technically not a drug on the formulary.
0: There is a lookup tool uh, on the board's website that you can use to determine where or uh, how the medical treatment guidelines interact with the formulary. I have to be very frank with you, it's not easy to use. And uh, also looking at the tools that are uh, surfaced to the risk professional within the medical portal, which we're gonna get to in a minute, uh, inside that medical portal, it doesn't automatically flag drugs that do not meet the formulary. So uh, this is going to put a lot of burden on us uh, or our PBMs or our uh, risk professionals to really make sure that the drugs are fitting within the formulary. So that's number one. Uh, prior authorization is required when there's a drug just simply not listed in the formulary. I know that sounds quite simple, but I'm trying to spend a moment here just to let us all reflect on the fact that it's actually going to be let's take some thought to determine sure. if the drug sure. is or is not. The second one is uh, a brand name drug where the generic exists. This is clearly a cost-saving measure. Uh, We should be trying to do this uh, anyway through our PBMs, but essentially uh, getting the
1: uh, prescribers to do generics instead of the brand name. That's going to be an eye-opener too, right? Because ultimately down the line, if the ultimate goal is closing with a settlement, that may require an MSA. Uh, Making these decisions early gets generics on the table and have those costs be extrapolated as opposed to the brand name, which will cost more.
0: Great point. And we're going to get to it in
1: practical advice, but absolutely
0: we should be using the formulary to price our MSAs going forward. That is best practice, okay. Uh, Next, combination products, not in the formulary, so none of these compounded or combo products. I was uh, recently in Southwest Florida, driving by uh, 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 pharmacies down there, which say we specialize in compounded medications. I'm like, oh boy. So those things are out, that's good for us. Um, And the last thing is uh, using a brand name uh, and sometimes the prescriber will prescribe a brand name simply because the dosage is different than the dosage that's available in the generics. Right. And instead of saying just take two five milligram non steroidal inflammatories, they'll want to get the brand name 10 milligram non steroidal inflammatory. Uh, so, in general, that will be allowed, uh, but only if the treating physician and uh, the prescribing doctor can explain why that's necessary. Uh, last thing is compounds, uh, compounds, combos. They should all be out. Uh, and be able to look out for combo drugs like the nonsteroidal and anti-inflammatories that have the built-in uh, GERD retardants <laughs> built in there. You know, the things that are just a combination of like Prilosec, which is over the counter. A lot and of topical
1: creams as well. Right? And well, that's the <laughs> compounds, and those are all coming out.
0: So let's be mindful of that. This should help us reduce costs. All right, so now we've got a prescriber who's saying, you know what, I want to get all of these crazy uh, medications into my patient.
1: Uh, What's the process that the uh, prescriber has to follow? Yeah, so there are different levels, right? It's going to start with the first level, uh, and that's where we jump in to actually determine whether or not they're on the formula. I think it's basic. uh, Well, uh, basic in the sense that structurally it's first, but it is going to be a a tough thing to, to decide, like you mentioned. But... From that perspective, it's our, it's our way of reading the formulary and deciding whether or not it's, a, it's, a, it's applicable and then whether they follow the guidelines for even making the request.
0: Right, and so the board has a prior authorization process that's going to follow three basic steps. Step one is going to be what they call first-level review, which is going to be done uh, by the carrier, by the self-insured employer, and that's going to be done internally. Uh, we'll talk about how that gets set up in the medical portal. Uh, but it does not have to be done by a medical professional. It could be a risk professional. It could be a PBM. It could be literally anybody. There's no requirements. We'll talk about that in a second. Then there's a second level in which the board says a carrier designated doctor uh, can make an opinion about whether or not this drug is necessary. And then finally, if the prescriber really has gotten rejected twice or been partially approved twice, they can now go to the medical director's office. And the board has question mark amount of time to respond. And we'll get to that in a second. All right. Prior authorization, first level, let's talk about it. There is four days for us to respond to that first level request. Uh, And that is, let me just say this very carefully, that is computer days. So it is 96 hours from the moment that the request goes in and weekends are included. So I know we're going to get into a lot of ugly circumstances where there's a holiday and somebody's right. on PTO
1: and there's four days and now we blew it. So this, this is helpful. definitely going to have some contention where, you know, an arbitrator or a judge is certainly going to have to make a decision that's going to make this more specific. For now, it's definitely four uh, calendar days. Calendar, think calendar. Okay.
0: Our responses is due within that period of time. Now, the good news here is the response can come from literally anyone. There are no qualifications required to respond. Um, then, after the 10 days, uh, the uh, prescribing doctor uh, has 10 days to then file a second-level review. And that process, uh, we again have four days to respond. This time, we need to respond with what's been called a carrier doctor. And there's a definition of carrier doctor, and i get to that in a second. Uh, after all, when our response is due, if we fail to respond within that four days, the drug will be prescribed and provided, and that's it. We have waived our ability to distribute that uh, medication. Uh, If the uh, provider or prescriber does not like our response after that four days, they can appeal again, and this will be the third and final level of review, which is to the medical director's office. Now, entertainingly, that's where this little flowchart ends, because there is no regulation, ruling, or or information about how long the medical director has to respond in their uh webinars and their discussions they've been telling us that have been attending uh what we're going to try to do in three or four days uh and three to five days is what they've been saying so to be determined uh, have you ever gotten a response from the board in three
1: days no and no, would that'd be would be a first i think the medical director's office is certainly something that uh isn't involved in our usual day-to-day decision making no. from the board but at the same time i think what they're actually expecting is that one of these parties from first and second level is going to make the mistake on a on a time specific deadline to have the decision already made. Agreed.
0: All right, so let's talk about level one review. First, it's going to be provided by it's going to be done by us the payer. It's going to be done in our medical pay our portal. Uh, if you haven't logged into the portal yet, and now's the time, we should be uh, going in there and talk about the portal in a few minutes. We go into the portal, you, the risk professional, or your designated PBM or UREC uh, accredited organization can go in there and they will see all of the pending requests. And uh, then there is a whole list of how you can grant, deny, grant in part, uh, all the things uh, that we're going to be doing uh, to look at that uh, request for approval for this medication. Okay. Uh, now, I want to remind everyone that all of the things that we're talking about today can be delegated uh, to another entity. It doesn't have to be the adjuster doing it. And we're going to talk about how that gets done. Um, Final reminders for this level one review, uh, there are no qualifications in the regulations or the statute or anything about how the person who does this first line review has to be accredited. Uh, This does not have to be a medical professional. This does not have to be a nurse. This does not have to be a doctor. It can be literally anyone. And I want to talk about that uh, nice and slowly and repeat it a few times because that's the number one question we've been getting from our clients, right? So uh, let's move along. Um, Next, the level one request must include the quantity and number of refills that is going to be requested. You think, right? Uh huh. Uh, The level one request. The first level request may not exceed 365 days. So what that means is
1: essentially if the level one request comes in for a quantity and refill that will take over a year, right, to, to complete, that's an automatic denial. Let's not worry about that. They've already haven't satisfied their burden. We then have four days to
0: respond to that level one request. And I'm going to keep repeating four days, four days, 96 hours, 96 hours, 96 hours, because it's scary to me. I also want to remind us as payers that we can partially pay for these things I will partially approve. This is just like a normal prior approval or MG2 variance request where we can say, yeah, you want 300 chiropractic adjustments? I'll tell you what, I'll authorize four. Right,
1: right. It's actually a great way to end the process there. If you believe there's some validity to to the claimant's injury, right? You may want to strategically consider a partial approval just to get you out of the second level, which we'll talk about.
0: Okay. Okay. Uh, Now, again, failure to respond in that four-day period is approval. So we should be uh, prioritizing this, visiting the portal. I'll talk about that in a sec. All right, a level two request. So now uh, they've requested this medication. Uh, Within four days, we responded with either a partial denial, partial approval, or a straight denial. Now our medical provider or prescriber is saying, hello, I still want to get this for my patient. Uh, I am doing a second request. They have 10 days. Uh, within 10 calendar days of the denial or partial approval, now, I haven't seen that broken out into number of hours, but my guess is it's 240 hours uh, from the time of our denial, and let's all be thoughtful about that. Uh, they need to include all the same information as the first level. They need to explain why they're departing from the formulary, why they're departing from the guidelines, and what they expect the results to be. Uh, they must include our response to the first level. Okay, this is important. And the reason I'm going to stress some of these is because how many
1: times do we see defective MG2s, defective uh, optional prior right. approvals? All right? the time, because the, the burden of proof actually is your best defense of some of these treatment requests, right? Have they considered the guidelines? Do are they using the right designated fax number for the carrier? Uh, I actually like like in this situation to, you know, for our attorneys out there, did you create the record? to appeal, right? right. Like yeah, everything you're you're to everything that you did properly and procedurally has to be in place for you to get that opportunity at this next level.
0: Okay, we also have to include some justification for the request, so some reason why they need to depart from the guidelines, and that's very important. Again, we have four days to respond to the second. How request. many hours is that? It's 96 hours. Okay. And then uh, if we don't respond within the four days, again, I hope everyone's getting a little nervous and scared out there, uh, then it is deemed granted. So let's be careful. Uh, last, uh, the level two review has to be done by a carrier's physician. Okay, I would it. S-
1: I would say this is probably the most uh, concerning area for our clients because of the four-day right. turnaround.
0: Who do, I, who do I get who's going to be able to pick up the phone and look at these things? And also entertaining questions involved, well, a carrier physician reviewed it, but do they actually have to sign it? Uh, do they have to actually go into the portal themselves? The board has issued some guidance saying, yeah, they do. They have to log in, have authorization to log in, go into the medical portal and make the changes, but really do that, Uh, that's to be determined. So who is a carrier's physician? What does that mean? Definition one, uh, they need to be employed by or contracted by the carrier or self-insured employer. Okay, makes sense. You need to have somebody on retainer, somebody that we're gonna use, and somebody that's gonna be identified in the portal, and we'll get to that in a second. Uh, or they can be employed by a URAC accredited company. Uh, So I went into the directory of accredited organizations to find a New York URAC accredited pharmacy benefits manager, workers' compensation benefits manager, and uh, I came up with zeros. If anybody's listening to this, who is a URAC accredited uh, organization uh, that is going to do level two reviews, please let us know in the questions. I would love to share your information with all my clients who are listening to this. We have literally hundreds of people uh, watching this webinar right now, and I'd love to be proven wrong if there isn't a URAC accredited company. I think this was meant to encourage companies to get URAC sure, accreditation, or sure. my understanding takes 10 to 12 months
1: to do. So It encourages the people who are going to look up and be prepared, right? Okay. So if, you know, If you're going to be accredited, then the idea is that if you don't have the retained a uh, doctor in-house, then this should be your opportunity to search outside. Yeah. And
0: uh, again, if there's anybody who is accredited, first off, please let us know in the questions so that we can announce your name or your organization's name. What
1: is a free sales opportunity? Absolutely.
0: And number two is uh, contact your act because their directory is all screwed up. Uh, last thing, um, not employed by the pharmacy benefits management company. So your PBM, not employed by them. They defined your carrier physician as not employed by your PBM, and that's An interesting thing for them to do.
1: You're assuming, doctor? It kind of makes sense. I think it really outlines the fact that if a PBM can be that first level reviewer, you don't want that person to be the same uh, person who's doing the second level review. Uh, It it, it kind of makes sense, I guess. Okay, we'll see.
0: All right, uh, third level review. And here's where we're going to get to some laughing parts. Uh, First, uh, again, it has to be filed within 10 days uh, of the denial or partial denial with the medical director's office. Uh, must include the first and the second level responses so that would be their applications as well as the responses um, the doctors uh, the medical directors office may go out and they have the authority to go out and hire private reviewers to do this review. so it doesn't necessarily have to be a board employee
1: be certain that they will eventually do this right if they if haven't they, already I mean, they, they will go know, they, they will get stuff. so many third-level review requests
0: that this will happen okay uh, uh, next if the boards the medical director agrees that this should not be prescribed there is allegedly uh no ability to resubmit right that request again uh
1: unless there is quote a change in conditions. so very key point very key point i I think here is also where you would want to use uh the practical advice we mentioned earlier in terms of an msa Uh, essentially if that decision is made by the medical director's office that document should be used with your MSA submission to get people to have lower cost MSA's
0: Hmm.
1: all right I'm hoping everybody can
0: hear me I just got some text saying there's some problems with the audio I hope it is working all right Uh, next Uh, Implementation timeline. So, uh, first, if you're one of our clients, you're getting this week or this month our 2020 calendar. Our 2020 calendar starts in December and it starts with December 5th, saying this is when this thing starts coming into effect. And that means that all new prescriptions need to follow it. Uh, We also marked it on the 2020 calendar in June, June 5, which is a Friday, Uh, the next time
1: that we're going to have all refill prescriptions compliant. With the formula. Right. So to to make sense of that, essentially if the if the claimant has been prescribed a medication prior to December 5th, then the formulary rules won't go into effect for that particular medication. If it's a new drug that has not been prescribed in that case before, then the formulary will apply. Okay.
0: how are requests received? They're going to be received through the medical portal. Uh, the payer or the PBM, whichever is your designation designated uh, responder, has some very specific responsibilities, and we should be doing these now. If you are a client, you've already heard from us. We've already been communicating with you about making sure that you've done these things. But let's talk about what uh, needs to be done. Uh, first, you need to identify contacts and emails for each level reviewer. Uh, for a payer who's doing this all themselves, uh, you need to identify your level one, level two uh, contacts. And those are the people that are going to be making the decisions at level one and level two. Which is also
1: funny in that section, too. They actually allow you to say who you don't want to contact. That's right. Like, don't contact Tommy over there. He's never going to get back to you.
0: Right. He's crazy. Uh, uh, three, uh, you need to identify your online administrator. That's the person who's going to have access to your account, your medical portal account. The most important person you're going to identify in here is your workload administrator. This is the person who, when the requests come in, can funnel them to all of the different reviewers that you've identified in the system as a reviewer. Workload administrator is going to have the most nightmarish task that I can possibly imagine in my entire life, which is uh, you're getting hundreds, maybe thousands, maybe tens of thousands of these requests, and you gotta know who's on PTO, who's out today, who's out tomorrow, if they're going to the risk professionals who are maybe assigned to those cases, right. and make sure that it's getting responded to in a short period of time. And the same thing applies for the PBM. Again, they need to identify a workload administrator, the reviewer, and then the user administrator. I don't know how that's different from the online administrator, but they're identified differently in, in the uh, signup forms. Uh, so how those requests come in uh, are going to be into the medical portal. Uh, we're gonna have an example of what the portal uh, looks like in a second, and then they have to be uh, attributed or assigned to the correct level of reviewer. That would be within your organization. Of course, the level two has to be a doctor. All right, Uh, let's do something practical. Let's take a look at the formulary together. I just want to spend a second reading it. Um, We've included it in the handouts. Uh, So it's handout time, everybody. Uh, The formulary that we're gonna look at is just the very first page of the formulary. Obviously, they have some introductory material in the very beginning that you've seen. And I want to take a look together on page number four where the formulary actually begins. And we're just sort of looking from left to right across the formulary. So uh, as you look across it, uh, the things that are important are what's the therapeutic category. There's a drop-down within the portal that you can type in the name of the medication or the, the either genetic or brand, and it'll tell you where it falls. Uh, it'll tell you what the generic name is. And what I'm looking at most importantly is the next several columns, special considerations. Uh, Special considerations are listed on the last page, and we talked about it earlier in this presentation. In order to uh, uh, prescribe coding with acetaminophen, uh, special consideration one and three has to apply, which is one, not to exceed a seven-day supply, and three, short-acting
1: only, right? Right, this this is where your detail-oriented, first-level reviewer is going to come in and say, well, yes, this may be a formulary drug, but since it's not applied uh, in the right way, it has to come by approval. Right, in other words, what
0: we're saying essentially is yes you know, under the medical treatment guideline for this body part acetaminophen with codeine uh for breakthrough or short pain is allowed um and but if the prescription comes in for 14 days or two weeks supply that's an automatic denial right and and, and you're saying in there look the reason why is the formula itself says no the doctor or prescriber will have to give us some sort of special circumstances to why this person needs breakthrough pain medication for longer periods than is in the medical treatment guidelines and the formulary.
1: Right, consider even the, the column over, uh, we have phase A, phase B, and perioperative. If they're not using it in the way that the formulary wants it to be, that is considered a non-formulary drug.
0: Right, and in order to really read this formulary and utilize it, if you're not using the one that's online and built into the portal, which is pretty good, uh, the answer is uh, you're going to be using the formulary itself, the medical treatment guidelines, as well as the last page of this formulary over and over and over again, all right. Uh, We want to give you some practical advice and some practical problems. We want to talk about what we think uh, it's going to look like, and then we're going to jump into questions. So uh, potential problems. First, number one to me is this 96-hour reviewing clock. If there's one thing we've seen uh, everywhere is the abuse of the variance process. And by that, I mean... uh, doctor wants to get X, Y, and Z surgery done because there's a high fee schedule for it. Uh, they file the MG2 variants. Uh, we respond to it with a denial. Two weeks later, they file, or one week later, or 24 hours later, they file the same one over and over and over again until we miss it.
1: Right, right. It's definitely a deadline and, and gotcha uh, state as we've all, always been talking about. You know. The, the, Doctors who have uh, receptions that call carriers and then find out through a voicemail that the person's out on vacation. Oh, this is the perfect time to send a variance request. It's yeah. certainly a problem here uh, that definitely is apparent with the formula as well.
0: All right, the next thing I want us to be mindful of when counseling our clients to do is to identify contacts, have uh, emails, make sure that we have people in place for that first and second line review. I also need us to be thoughtful about what that workload administrator's job is. That workload administrator's job is really uh, to uh, provide cover uh, for whoever's out. Somebody's out that day, and, it's, and if you are trying to self-manage, particularly the first level review, and you're trying to pass it amongst your risk professionals, I think this is something we have to be very thoughtful about. That workload administrator's to have to make sure that when these requests come in, somebody's responding to it. And Remember, weekends count. This is a four-day calendar day deadline, uh, and weekends can count.
1: It's definitely a little bit of a change, right? The variance request for, for a particular uh, case might go to a particular adjuster or risk professional. Uh, in this case, actually overburdening them with being the responsive person for the office is going to take a little bit of uh, maneuvering and, and really a uh, change of protocol.
0: Yeah. Uh, next thing is there is no time in the regulation, a no specific time requirement, due date, deadline for the medical director's office to respond. Uh, that, we're going to see how this plays out over time and how it works. Uh, but, and that's something we'll, you know, we'll definitely keep you up to date with as we sort of update people on how this is
1: happening. Yeah, sure. I mean, no one likes an attorney saying case-by-case case basis, right? Uh, you like more specific guidance here, but the, the issue here is, you know, is your case going to be affected by the prevention of the prescription to the claimant, right? If we know that the, the prescription is unnecessary or really overbroad, then the timeline uh, before the MDO actually helps defense, Right. It means that the claimant is not getting the medication that he he or she does not deserve and presents avenues for for settlement leverage or or other issues in your case. If it talks about cases where the the claimant actually needs this and you start to begin to wonder whether this is this dragon fee is actually hurting the claimant. Well, you know, workers compensation is designed to protect the ones that are actually hurt and deny the ones that are not. So then you can make that informed decision at that point.
0: All right. Last little practical point that we want to make uh, practical guide we said this earlier, we should be now pricing our MSAs using the formula
1: going forward. It's almost like we don't work together or something. I, mean, I, I figured I, I got that out of thin air. I promise I did not look at these slides that much.
0: I mean, you're totally me We didn't prepare for the presentation. Uh, that's a terrible idea. That's true. a horrible idea. That's true. All right, prepare all uh, live question and answer. I am now going to open up the, uh, the question sheet over here and see what you've typed into us. We're going to answer as many of these as we can. I also want to report that this uh, webinar is being recorded and we will put it up on our website. Uh, so that you'll have access to all the questions that are being asked. All right, let's come over here to questions. I hope there are a bunch. All right, I think we
1: have oh, wow. a bunch. <laughs> I mean, we, we have a record set today. All right.
0: Uh, the workload administrator, can this also be deferred to a PBM as the L1 and L2 reviewers are, or does it have to be a carrier employee? We are getting confused, confusing responses to this question, says uh, Jonathan. It also says he left. So, did we answer his question? Let's do it anyway, because we're on <laughs> Okay. Uh, Jonathan, the answer is uh, clearly a workload administrator is identified in the PBM section of the portal. So, it does appear uh, that that PBM would take on that role of workload as well. I
1: think it's a matter of, uh, you know, uh, contractual nature. I mean, is your PBM uh, willing to do this and, and do this to the level that you want it uh, to occur?
0: All right. Charlie asked the question, do both? providers and claimants need to be notified of the formulary before December 5,
1: 2019. What will occur if one of the parties alleges that they were not notified? Certainly going to happen. Right. Yeah. I didn't know this, right? Ignorance is no excuse of the law. This is uh, something that has been implemented and has been discussed since 2017. Yeah, it's, it's a statute. So they're yeah. stuck with it. Very bright line rule here. If the formulary applies, it applies. Yep, absolutely. Uh, same thing as medical treatment guidelines.
0: Uh, if doctors I never heard of the medical treatment guidelines, doesn't matter, they apply in your case and you should be treating people there. Uh, Cindy asked the question, how can I get a copy of the handout? I am remote. All right, Cindy. Uh, When you're looking at us, uh, hopefully on the GoToWebinar uh, control panel, there is a section that says download. You open up or handout, there should be one in there. Let me just check and make sure it is in there. Yes, it is, it's called NYS-drug-formulary-pdf. That's the handout. And if you have a problem with that, uh, Cindy, you can email me, I'll send it to you. Can I ask the question, what is the remedy to the payer if the provider fails to submit an approval request through the portal for a non-formulary medication. Okay, entertaining questions. So here I am, I'm the prescriber, I'm not submitting approval requests, I'm just writing these prescriptions, and we're the we're the payer, right? We're not paying for them. So the remedy is essentially that it's not coming into the case, we're not seeing the bill come in and you shouldn't be paying for those. Right,
1: okay. It's a, it's a fairly simple uh, application with, with a treatment request via an MG2 or C4 auth, if they request it properly and you deny it then they have to go through certain circumstances to get it approved it's going to be similar if the bill comes in without the approval you're going to want to deny it okay john w asked the question what
0: party is responsible for getting the loopholes added all right so (laughs) we don't want the loopholes added uh, but if the loopholes get added it's going to be added by the requesting prescribing doctor who's saying hey this meets this special consideration uh, that is what they're going to be doing and particularly I think they're gonna be focused on special consideration Four, which essentially is the Catch-all loophole which is hey, it's not in the medical treatment guidelines, but my patient needs it right? Sure, and I, I have to
1: explain th- it I think to the the, the idea or maybe the, the use of the, the word loophole can actually lend you to, to kind of create that idea but uh, essentially if they believe that the formulary applies based on this, you know, quote-unquote loophole you still have the option to deny a bill if you believe that it doesn't apply. And then you can go litigate uh, with your best attorneys, obviously. All right, and Matthew asks a question that is closely related.
0: Uh, How should carriers respond to requests for prescriptions when the case is controverted or under appeal? All right, so cases under appeal, you should be responding under normal circumstances. Unless the issue on appeal is the medication itself, uh, generally speaking, medical, medical care continues even though the case may be under a board uh, panel review or or appeal okay so that's step zero but the second part of it is how do i prescribe prescriptions when
1: the case is controverted sure it's you know if i could get on a little soapbox for a while you know this is kind of where we can make a dent as well because a lot of times the c8.1b disputed bills come in and they're denied simply for the fact that the case is controverted well what happens if the case after trial gets established then all those bills become payable the idea here is that if you have an alternate option to deny the bill, meaning the formulary doesn't apply or the special consideration doesn't, doesn't apply, make sure those defenses are known because yes, both. those are actually in addition to the fact that the case is controversial. Agreed. Strongly if you lose agree. out, then the special considerations come in to save the day.
0: Yeah. And uh, short answer, Matthew, is you should be denying them. And in fact, inside the medical portal, there is an actual dropdown or a selection you can state that this is being denied because it's controverted and also the portal should actually alert you in the match. Uh, Actually, it doesn't alert the payer. It it alerts the prescriber that the case is not established or is controverted status when they are making the prescription. So there are some things built into alert parties to that. What about patches, asks Joe M. Are they out? Uh, So uh, in general, yes, patches are out uh however uh we've got to look you have to look through the formula to see if there's any specific uh treatment or uh special uh uh specific uh discrete patch is allowed in or out i would actually caution between making a
1: catch-all uh, term like that you know i think it's very commonplace to use those words and it's very difficult to, to understand or apply them to the formulary because what's going to happen is Patches will be created with combination drugs or or things that may be formulary drugs but are not Mm -hmm. to create the the understanding that it should be. Just be very careful what exactly is being prescribed.
0: All right. Hannah uh, Hannah W. asked the question, if a claimant does not wait the 96 hours allowed period for our response to a pharmacy request, instead either pays out of pocket or seeks treatment at an emergency room to obtain pending medication. Do you think we would have a defensible position to argue against being responsible for the bill? Yeah. So if there's, if the prescriber is submitting the request for authorization, because they know this thing exceeds the formulary and the guidelines, right? And then the claimant goes out on their own and gets the care. Uh, Again, this is the reason why you would want to put your specific objections in, despite the fact that they went and tried to circumvent the rules so that ultimately when the uh, law judge is hearing the case, we could say, like, here's all the reasons why we shouldn't have had to pay for this, despite the fact that they went out and got it on their own or went
1: to the emergency room, Absolutely. Right? I think procedural defenses are our best friend. Uh, certainly because of the, the the recency effect of the formulary, you may actually not get the result you want before a law judge because the law judge isn't necessarily going to be up to date on a new thing. Surprise, surprise. So you may have to go to a board panel level to actually get the decision you want, but at least making the position is going to be our Uh, favorable outcome. All right, next question comes
0: from Joan. He says, does the second level reviewer need to respond on the portal? Answer, yes. Uh, All the responses need to be through the portal. Uh, And this is going to be an interesting moment. I don't know how many doctors uh, really want to be sitting around whittling answers into this uh, web form that they've
1: developed. The ambitious ones.
0: I I presume so, (laughs) uh, but there's no, because the answer is within the form itself, uh, is it a doctor? Maybe Telling someone here, this is the reasons to deny it, or here's what my review says, how is that going to be authenticated? Uh, But the answer is yes, all of the responses need to be through the portal. The board's been very clear about that. Uh, Robert says uh, uh, the board is over five days behind in entering new people, I guess, meaning new patients and claims, into the medical portal. Welcome to New York Workers Compensation uh, World, uh, Robert. I have never seen. I will say this: I have a great deal of respect for the board. Recently, I think the virtual hearing process is just about to say amazing. Just about to say, I think it's wonderful tech. Everything else is a little bit, you know, bailing wire and bubble gum and and hope and prayers. Uh, We'll see if this is up and running and up to date uh, by December five when it really goes live. Uh, Sarah says, "Why is there no option to grant without prejudice?" on the pre-authorization
1: all right so sarah and essentially
0: uh first of all there is always uh, acceptance without prejudice um, option in the uh, workers compensation world in new york if you accept a case without prejudice uh, within the first year you can controvert or convert the case to a controverted status in our experience that generally doesn't really happen although we do see cases uh answered as uh, you know, the destroy has box M check that says essentially without liability. Without, without liability right. uh, in, in our ex- experience, I think a decision should be made early in the case whether this is one we are going to dispute and defend or it's one we're going to accept. Uh, instead of waiting, I know that's very difficult, particularly with the payer compliance rules, to make these kind of quick decisions on to whether a case should be compensable or not. Uh, but those are our challenges.
1: Sure. I think it, it may not be specifically on the form, but the idea of the formulary is cutting off the supply and the dosage at a level, right? It's not meaning uh, you accept a particular drug and that means you've accepted it for the life of the claim, right? The, the formulary, formulary actually intends to cut off supplies that reapproval must be requested.
0: All right. Kathleen T says, hey, Greg." I went to a claims association meeting yesterday. We went over the drug formulary, and the board indicates that a clinical person, so I guess me, somebody with medical background, should review the first level because the doctor gives clinical notes, which they felt an adjuster would be able to address.
1: Maybe not not
0: able to address. address. Uh, Your thoughts. Okay, so that's uh, maybe good advice. I don't know. I can only tell you exactly what the regulation states, which is that a level one reviewer has to have no specific qualification. I would also tell you, that some of the best risk professionals I know uh, sitting in those adjuster chairs out there are some of the best doctors I've ever met in my life, right? I mean, they, right. they know what they're doing. Right. Uh, and, you know, I, I mean, we're kind of like amateur physicians as well. So speak for yourself. I, I don't know if you need to have a specific degree uh, or other than, uh, you know, doing this for 20 plus years to sort of know what's in and out. So uh, although that might be a great practice and, and certainly I wish all of my clients, uh, all their risk professionals and all of their first line reviewers were well credentialed medical professionals. I just don't know if it's possible, and I can tell you uh, categorically it's not required. Uh, next, uh, Joan asks a second question How does the formulary apply to controverted claims? I think we've already answered that one. Uh, Marie asks, Does an IME company which has a WC board certified MD and is URAC approved function as a level two responder? In other words, can they act as a reviewer? Presumably uh yes absolutely uh if you're URAC accredited if you're a physician you are absolutely uh accredited and able to be at that level two reviewer um uh, okay There we go free it's time for a free ad uh liana shanker shanker says Corvell corporation is a national company and is URAC accredited in new york and our new york location is in central island so Corvell, c-o-r-v-e-l, C-O-R-V-E-L you're our guys. All right. Uh, uh, M says, does this affect our old claims where claimants have been on opioids for a long time? Yes. Yes, this is great. For all claims. Now, uh, just remember, please, that we already have non-acute pain medical treatment guidelines, which should be affecting your cases where your claimants have been on opioids and long-acting pain medications for long periods of time. Guess what? It's been essentially neutered by the law judges refusing to really apply or follow the non-acute pain management guidelines, in my opinion. Uh, There have not been great uh, outcomes on that. Uh, With the non-acute pain management guidelines, we've had great success in getting people into waiting programs,
1: but that's about it. Sure, I think uh, the the guidelines really give you the basis, uh, but it doesn't prevent the provider from getting past you on the ng2 level uh, where the deadline gotcha uh, analysis really hurts you the formulary is actually going to help if you have the right uh, application okay uh there's a second
0: question here from suzanne it says is there an office standard letter that needs to be used to approve or deny a prescription uh no uh, those should all be done within the portal and the reasons for the denial should literally be placed into the portal uh, there is a board form for responding to it and that is all done through the portal uh, in level two, you mentioned that a copy of the response letter needs to be attached. Uh, I would like to see an example of a response letter. Right, so that is for the prescribing physician who is saying, hey, my first request was denied, I've got a level two request now, and they have to include our initial response to that. So that, and that would be uh, most likely on the board form. Um, okay, a second, third question now, and does the formula apply to controverted claims? Uh, suzanne tells me greg attachment did not come through can you send to me later okay we'll get to you i see you suzanne hi Uh, alicia says uh i also missed the email with the handout materials nope the handout materials are actually in the um uh, the webinar control panel that should be on your computer right now you should be able to download them anybody has a problem i will certainly email them to you uh maureen asks a kind of interesting question greg what happens if we deny a drug by mistake
1: Do we ever make Uh, mistakes, Mr. Cezanne? No, of course not. But if you want to revert a denial, simply call the doctor's office and approve it. Out of court gets you out of the the process. I'm sure the medical director's office would love that.
0: Right. Uh, Next, Andrea asks a question. If a prescription is prescribed pre-surgery, so I'm going to presume that this is a perioperative medication, and the claimant decides not to have surgery as scheduled, but was still provided the medication okay great. this is weird and then the claimant decides at a later date uh, she wants the same medication to be prescribed and approved again based on the surgery being rescheduled so here we have someone being prescribed perioperative drugs apparently takes them uh, doesn't get the surgery has has a great weekend uh enjoying uh, these major painkillers uh and white wine and now uh <laughs> the surgery and then does it again i mean at this moment major i think i would be denying these things and also uh, probably putting that person under surveillance because they're having too much of a good time uh so not to be too uh flippant uh i think uh ultimately the board would probably uh reapprove those perioperative drugs if they are going to then finally have that surgery that second time when it's actually rescheduled
1: uh we are halfway through the questions, by the way, which is it's great. There are so but, many questions.
0: Yeah. This is awesome. All right, uh, Suzanne asked the question, uh, uh, on the 96 hours, is the provider only going to request this via the portal, or are they required to send us something in writing, paper form, mail, or fax? OK, so here's the scary moment. Nope, it's only through the portal. That's the only place they have to request this stuff. It should be all digital. There should be no mailing, faxing, or, or paper, which means that workload administrator and those level one contacts we really need to be checking the portal every day. Right. Right. And the portal, by the way, will alert you. It is also um, uh, sortable, so you can sort it by most in- latest requests, earliest requests, most pending requests, those types of things. All right, Ken asked the question, is the payer required to list all medications on provider notification letters? If yes, can they include both formulary and non-formulary medications? Uh, so I'm not sure oh, exactly what this question is asking. Is the, is the payer required to list all the medications? Uh, there, as far as I know, any medication that's being requested by a prescriber has to be done through the portal. The portal organizes the requests by any criteria you want, and that could be by the patient, that could be by the claim number, that could be by the board number. So if you're asking, can I, is there an easy way for me to see every prescription that's coming in just for this one claimant? Absolutely, and, and for multiple physicians, you can sort that in the portal. If you wanted to sort the portal and say, I only wanna see a uh, request for medications from this one doctor, I think that can also be done. I think you can also sort in that way as well. So I hope that answers your question.
1: I'd also be mindful too, if it's a for, true formulary drug, you might not see a request for approval, right? You might get the bill because it's truly on the formulary. You would have the option to deny the bill if you believe that's not on the formulary.
0: All right, Rachel ask the question, if the formulary states it's quote, second, close quote, How do we know what drug should have been tried first? All right, so the formulary does identify drugs as second-line drugs. Uh, All of those second-line drugs should only be requested after a first-line drug has proven to be ineffective or there's a co-morbidity there. So two things are gonna happen. One, uh, you have to check the medical treatment guidelines to determine what is the first-line drug? What's the phase A drug? What's the first one that they should have been taking? Second, in the request for the second-level drug, the doctor has to tell you what a first-level drug was that wasn't efficacious or had an interaction or aggravated a comorbidity. So that's where you'll be able to determine exactly what was the first one and why did it get skipped or why was it ineffective?
1: Yeah, I'm sure. I think that's actually going to come up more when a second line drug is being prescribed first before anything, right? Because uh, typical providers will just, you know, their drug of choice or whichever pharmacy rep they like that particular day is going to use a second line drug before a first line drug is actually tried.
0: All right, here we got, it's our old pal Leonard.
1: I think he actually likes when we name him in the webinars.
0: Hi. Leonard. All right, so Leonard asked the question if a request if I request NoME to address a non-formulary issue, okay, non-medication issue. can I have the examiner address prescriptions in addition to the specific issue? Okay, let's full stop here.
1: Yes, yes. Do formulary do
0: does not change your right to have your independent medical evaluator look at the entirety of the treatment course. Whether it complies or doesn't comply with the medical treatment guidelines, whether it complies or does not comply with the formula, makes absolutely no difference. Your IME always has the opportunity to question, review, consider the entire course of care. So that's number one. And then Leonard asks, but is that a backdoor for the carriers to address prescriptions approved due to timeline issues? Yeah, absolutely it is. So in other words, uh, hey, I blew the 496 hour timeline. Whoops, now this person's on this crazy medication. Can I have it still reviewed by IME? Yeah, absolutely. Right, just like you—you you do not lose the right to have a, a medical review ever. All right. Um, I'm not—I'm going to kill this name. Shinyanwa. Sorry. Okay. Are we still held by the same time frame if
1: the request is received on an MG2? Chi-Chi. Well, that's a good question. That's a great question actually. So the MG2 will give you that timeline that we're used to seeing, but the formulary now creates your burden of proof defense, right? If the formulary drug actually should have been requested for approval according to the rules of the formulary, that is an automatic denial based on burden of proof. That would then have to be a 15 calendar day uh, denial. Okay, Alicia says, where is this portal located? All right.
0: Uh, if you haven't logged into the portal yet or you haven't been talking about this within your claims organization, and now's the time, uh, the portal is located uh, the same place that eCASE is located. It is, should be one of your uh, electronic CIS available uh, services. Uh, again, you have to be registered and authorized to use the portal, but it's the same thing
1: as or the same way you would log into eCASE. Okay. Do get used to it. I mean, my search history of the past year just says drug formulary, so. Uh, all right. you know, lots of requests for drugs. <laughs> uh,
0: Keely asked a question, what happens in cases where the pharmacy does not process a prescription through our PBM and we don't know about the medication until we get the bill? Okay, again, you should win because it should all be going through the portal. Right, deny the bill. Yep. Uh, Chi-Chi asked the question, also, if the request was not
1: addressed within the time frame. Does that mean automatic approval? Yes, Yes. it does. That's that's the first problem we have, right? The 96 hours have to be on top of it. If we don't, that's going to be the gotcha aspect of it.
0: All right, June asked the question, Greg, can anyone upload determinations to the portal for level two as long as it's provided by a reviewing physician? Yeah, it seems to me that's how that's going to work. Does the providing... The board is issued guidance in their both their webinar that they did, as well as their frequently asked questions, saying that the uh, physician reviewing the request should be logging in and typing in their answer, but it seems to me like there's no way of authenticating or proving that, uh, and it does seem to me like, particularly if they're going through a lot of these in a row, uh, that it could be done by administrative staff. Again, to me that's unclear as to how they're going to authenticate that it was actually the reviewing physician or not. Uh, uh, somebody whose name starts with a G and says, don't use my name since it is so unique. Are claimants allowed to put their narcotics under their private health now? No, uh, certainly they do it, right? Do, yeah. they, do they go out and get uh, prescriptions filled outside of the workers' compensation system because we would never provide this within the workers' compensation system? Yes, uh, but that should never become your liability or exposure, uh, and will we as carriers get the health insurance match program for reimbursements uh, yeah, so that this doesn't affect the HIMP program in any way. So if you do have um, HIP requests that are going back and forth between different carriers, uh, this shouldn't be a problem or shouldn't affect that. Uh, Jennifer says, if we are denying the request for authorization through a portal, does a C-8.1a need to be filed? I don't think we've seen any guidance whatsoever on that. My understanding is that the prescriber will get their uh, notification through the portal on their end which also triggers them, hey, do you want to file an appeal of this or not? Right, that's a great question.
1: We get the request through the portal. The doctor is going to get it back through the portal. Uh, you don't have to do anything official other than to pl- uh, comply with the portal requirements and the timeline.
0: Yeah, and you know what? Uh, let's, let, let's look into that answer for you because I think that's one for us to circle back to. To me, as a built and suspenders type of attorney, i think i would still do a ca.1a just to cover my butt but there doesn't seem to be any reason there has to be guidance on this i'm sure it. Uh, a lot of times ca.1a's
1: are purely for notice uh you know purposes right uh, if a claimant doesn't attend an ime and you want to let a provider know that you're not going to pay their next bill because they didn't sit, the claimant didn't see your doctor then a ca.1a just provides them notice that you're not going to pay the bill so it's not it's not going to hurt you
0: okay uh we're going to do one more question because we've now been at this for about an hour and there we're only about two thirds of the way through the questions, uh, so uh, maybe we should do a poll whether people want us to down and answer questions, or we should just do the rest <laughs> over email. But Ken he probably says, won't get that
1: till the end of the list. <laughs> <Right>. so, <laughs> is
0: the board number required on the provider claim and notification letters? Uh, there are not going to be any of those. This is all going to be done through the uh, portal, which is absolutely done that way. Um, uh Gigi asked the question is there any current argument for establishing the time frame to be business days i don't know just common sense yeah it should be uh, diana says what happens with claimants who purchase prescriptions out of pocket or put through private insurance i think we've answered that a few times jillian says what is the portal and where is it found who maintains this portal greg laws all right so uh, besides being a really cool video game called portal uh, there is a medical portal that is now going to be accessible to everyone who's registered Uh, through the Workers' Compensation Board. It's the same way you get to eCase, and uh, by the way, guys, uh, if you're out there doing New York Workers' Compensation claims, uh, we should be uh, getting familiar with the portal now. This is the time. You've only got a few weeks. Um, uh, Sarah says, Greg, the specific URAC accreditation needed is IRO. Okay, Uh, that's news to me. I was looking up um, beneficiary manager or workers' uh, compensation manager, so okay, uh, maybe there are many more. Uh and Sarah then also sells me, Greg Corvell is the only company that has the workers' compensation utilization URAC management accreditation. Congratulations, Corvell go Corvell. All right. Uh Robert says most companies that do UR uh will that are URAC accredited in New York will be able to do this. Uh, our UR company, Gen is gonna be our level two. So it sounds like there's a second one. Uh and also says, hey guys, there also is a lidocaine patch on the formulary. Okay, so there's a specific there. Thank you, Robert. Um, okay, uh, Derek says, um, Derek Prochnow says, uh, in a prior webinar uh, put on by the AIW board, they said the level 2 reviewer needs to be licensed in the state of New York. Regulation 44.1G does not require them to be licensed in New York. Can you clarify whether this is a requirement? Yeah, it says medical, it says uh, physician authorized to practice law, uh, sorry, practice medicine. Uh, so that's what the uh, actual requirement states. Liana says, claim suggesters are not clinicians. How will they be able to provide a medical reason for denial, question mark? Also, if the doctor forgoes the process and simply prescribes the medication and ends up at the pharmacy, will it be a penalty if the carrier chooses to approve medication at that point, question mark? So okay. at, at, if they're bypassing the portal, uh, Liana, uh, that's gonna be a problem and they should not be held responsible to pay for it. Neither the claimants nor the prescribers or the pharmacies are gonna be allowed to uh, bypass the portal. The board's goal is to um, focus all of the uh, the, the uh, requests for prescriptions uh, regarding all patients that are covered by a workers' compensation claim through this medical portal. All right, it's at one o'clock, it's at an hour, and we're seeing attendance drop down. We've now dropped down to below 200 people. Uh, there are a number of additional questions, and uh, the people we didn't get to yet: Mary, Joe, Sean, John, Jacqueline, Jacqueline, Alana, Derek. Joe, there's a whole bunch of people uh, asking us questions <laughs> to uh, stay on. <laughs> some of them just <laughs> say, stay, on, stay on. Uh we're gonna email you back answers. Uh, maybe we'll have another webinar on this topic because just, just Q&A. We're just maybe Q&A. just Q&A because this is seeming like a topic that there needs to be some more clarity built around. Uh, again, my name is Greg Lois. I'm joined today by my partner, Christian Cison, uh from Lois Law. Thanks for joining us today. Uh, this was fun for us. I hope it was fun for you and informative. All right, everybody, uh, have a great day. See you soon, bye.